0: welcome to the business of psychology podcast the show that helps you to reach more people help more people and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy today i'm talking about policies now policies might seem like a really boring subject but but trust me, the first time something unexpected happens in your practice, you're going to be really grateful that you did all your thinking in advance. So in the past year, I've faced a few situations where people haven't paid me for my time, um, or where I've been really worried about the well-being of a client. And these were really horrible, painful moments where the threat system gets activated, imposter syndrome looms large. um, And I'm really grateful that I had a clear tick list to follow and those came from my policies. Uh, It meant I could feel confident that I handled them in a way that I'd be proud of when emotions aren't kind of clouding the way that i'm thinking so i really couldn't emphasize enough how important i think this is for your private practice and i'm actually excited (laughs) to talk to you today about policies and specifically six key policies that i think you need um, in your private practice and the way that i'm talking about policies today that includes Contracts, which are kind of policies that you share with clients, but also a couple of policies that you just keep behind the scenes for yourself. So the first policy or contract that I wanted to talk about today is the therapy contract. This is the one that everybody thinks about. And really your therapy contract can be one or it can be two documents, depending on how you work. But it does need to include at least three main areas. Firstly, it needs to include what you expect from your clients. Secondly, it needs to include what they can expect from you. And thirdly, it needs to include how they can let you know if something goes wrong and how you will let them know if something goes wrong on your end. So first thing to say, it's worth having a lawyer draw this up for you so that you've got a contract that meets your specific requirements. I don't want to be the prophet of doom, I know I often am, Uh, but sadly in private practice you will very likely at some point experience people who ghost you uh, without paying or who expect you to work outside of your normal office hours or, and this is the trickiest one that I've come across, uh, claiming that you haven't provided the services that you've been paid for. Thankfully, this hasn't happened to me frequently, not at all, Um, but I did once uh, quite recently have a client who refused to pay quite a large sum of money, and I was incredibly grateful that my contract with them was watertight, so the matter got resolved really quickly. It was a horrible experience, and I I am going to make another podcast specifically about that because I know we all really struggle with it, Um, but at least I didn't have to worry that my contract was ambiguous in any way because it really wasn't. Uh, a good lawyer who understands the nature of your work um, and can make sure that your contract has explanations in it um, of what will happen in all kinds of situations including a global pandemic for example all kinds of things that we probably wouldn't necessarily have thought of um, is worth their weight in gold really is um It just gives you and your clients a safety net to fall back on so if anything unexpected or weird happens um, you've got somewhere you can turn to to tell you how to behave on both sides. Claire Veal is our resident lawyer for psychology business school and she's created a template therapy contract that covers all of this legal stuff so if you're a student on psychology business school then you can access your templates from your dashboard there Um, Otherwise there are templates that you can adapt in other places, um, but actually I can't really recommend them um, because they're not specifically tailored to the type of businesses that we run and I haven't come across one yet that doesn't leave out something that's fairly crucial to a therapy business. Um, So definitely worth either getting one drawn up, considering having a look at the templates in Psychology Business School Or, I mean, it may be that there are other therapy-specific templates out there. I just haven't found them yet. So that's your legal bit, and that is really important. But, in my opinion, that's not the entirety of a therapy contract. So in my opinion, um, and obviously this differs for different orientations and modalities, but I, I do think that you really need a plain English section that just explains, human to human, the process of working with you how they should pay you how they can contact you and it needs to spell out exactly what happens if they're paying by insurance who's liable for any excess uh, on an insurance policy what happens if they miss a session including who pays for that because i found that's quite different with different insurers um, and how much notice you need of session cancellations how they should notify you etc And that means that you might need different contracts for different insurance companies and self-pay clients. I only work with two now, so I'm able to kind of incorporate that into one contract, which has streamlined my processes and made life a lot easier. But if you are working with lots of third parties, it might be that you do need um, separate plain English um, sections for your contract or separate contracts altogether. So all of that falls into the category of what you expect from your clients, I would say. But you also need to set out really clearly what your clients can expect from you and also what they can't expect from you. So you need to state your working times, how long they should expect to wait for an email response or a text response if you're offering that. Um, I personally haven't offered that in the past, but... Um, Thinking about it, you know, if you give clients a mobile number, when is it okay for them to ring? When is it okay for them to text you? And increasingly, it's the same with email. I think there's been a shift in culture, and increasingly, people expect a response from you outside of hours on emails because a lot of people are working that way these days. So, if you're not going to provide that, and for all kinds of stress and burnout reasons, I'd suggest that you don't, Um, but if you're not going to provide that, you need to state. Uh, when you are available, when you're not available, and what kind of emails you're willing to respond to. Um, You need to let them know how they can contact you, whether you're willing or able to take short notice phone calls or plug sessions in at short notice. Uh, my life means my clients need me to be really, really clear with them, because I, when I'm not at work, I'm really not at work, and I'm not contactable, uh, so my contract spells that out really, really clearly, and it also points them to other services that they can access when I'm not available. I think that's really important, and I'd urge everybody, even if you're a really available person, you're not like me, um, and and you're kind of on a lot more than I am you still need to have in your contract the places that people can go when either you're not the appropriate service and it's an emergency and they need crisis support or if if it's outside of your working hours you're not going to be able to respond to them. Um, I then copy that bit and put that into my out of office reply um, that goes on when I know that I'm not going to be available to reply to emails. So that's just a tip about that. Um, you can also state here how you intend to let them know if you need to cancel a session. I Life has shown me that there are times when I'm going to have to let my clients down at short notice. Thankfully, I can count them on one hand uh, how many times it's happened in the past three years, but it does happen. And to pretend it doesn't, I think, is um, putting our heads in the sand a little bit. So... Spelling out in your contract what your communication method is going to be. Are you going to text them? Are you going to email them? Are you going to phone them? Just means that nobody can really complain if they didn't check their messages or they didn't get the message in advance. I know it isn't nice to think about and we never want to do that to anybody. But having a clear plan for how you will handle it can help both of you feel a bit more at ease and help with some of those projections if you work in a a dynamic way. Um... So personally, I've combined my plain speaking bits and my legal contract into just one document so that I can easily get a GDPR compliant consent from my clients, which I do through my software package and I use WriteUp for that. Um, that has obvious downsides to it. And I think if if you're doing a piece of work where contracting is really important, Uh, For whatever reason, having that boundary and having that contract is integral to the work, and I've worked in that way in the past, then it may be that you want a separate, more co-constructed document that you actually um, look at between you in session, um, whereas you want the legal stuff to be consented to before you even see the client. That would very much be my preference, if that's not the way that you work already. Because of GDPR, it's really important that your client has consented, not only to the therapy contract bit that we've just discussed, but also your privacy policy, your data protection policy, before they give you any information. And I would say that has to happen before they see you, because I wouldn't see anybody that I didn't have a GP and next of kin details for, for example. Um, so for me, this, the therapy contract and the privacy policy that I'm going to talk about in a minute, those two things are sent off and consented to before I even send out my details form to the client. And that's really important to me. Um, So I'd encourage you to think about that kind of flow um, for your business and what makes sense for you. Okay, so let's talk about the privacy policy then. Probably the second most important um, policy that you need So privacy policy can look really scary and even ones that are written to try and be plain speaking are big and they're long and they contain lots of information about um, EEA areas and acronyms that we probably don't know that much about but I think it's really helpful to think about it in human terms. Your privacy policy is just what exactly is going to happen to people's precious data when they give it to you. Now, I'm no GDPR expert, not at all, Um, but from what I have learned, I'm gonna be a bit controversial and say that I actually really like GDPR. Because at heart, GDPR attempts to make us treat our clients' information like we'd want our deepest, darkest se- um, secrets to be treated. So it can seem really confusing, but a privacy policy on your website, or that you give out in person if you don't use a website, is literally just telling people what happens. um, when they give you their information. It tells them what you're gonna ask them for, what you collect from them, why you collect it, how you store it, and who you share their information with. So you do need to do a bit of work to make an accurate privacy policy. Uh, You need to list out all the software that you use. So stuff like Google Drive, Dropbox, any practice management software like WriteUp, uh, accounting software like Xero or QuickBooks, any email marketing software you use, Um, Anything you use to kind of make your life easier, you do need to list all of that out and check that it's all GDPR compliant. If you're using any of the big hitters, they usually are, but do double check. And you need to tell people that you're going to be sharing your data with those providers. Mm Um, it's really difficult to DIY a privacy policy, and I think if you look, if you look at them, if you go on my website, for example, and look at mine, you can tell that I did not DIY that. <laughs> it's way too technical, and there are things that you just need to have correctly worded in there to cover your back properly. So I'd really recommend, um, if you've got the budget, getting a bespoke privacy policy drawn up. Um, If you're in psychology business school, again, Claire Veal, um, our GDPR lawyer, has created this for us. So you've got access to that if you're a psychology business school student. Um, Otherwise, you can look at um, templates from people like Suzanne Dibble, who's another GDPR lawyer who has a, a group that you can join, which I think is called GDPR Academy. Um, where for a fee you can get templates of documents that you need for your website. so it's not specific to therapists um, so you will need to amend quite a lot of stuff and you'll need to do a bit of work looking at um, you know what is relevant to you and what isn't um, but you know that she's got kind of the legal wording of it correct and she's very good at what she does, so that's one that you can use. I believe the Federation for Small businesses, the FSB also produce templates. Um, that you could look into. So there are a few places that you can go to get a template for this but you are going to need to do a little bit of work making sure that it accurately reflects what you really do with your data. Then, and this is the next step which I, I will admit I didn't do for the first couple of years of my business but I think has really made a difference to my peace of mind now I do do it and that is to write out a user-friendly flowchart of your privacy policy for yourself and for any future employees or contractors so I find it useful to have that in Asana which is a project management tool that I use um, and for key tasks like uploading progress notes and reports I can then map out Um, my data management, if you like, and tick off each stage, making sure that information is shared in the right places and deleted from the right places. So that helps you to train anybody who might come on board into your business. And it gives you a bit of peace of mind that you're actually following your own policy. Again, it's not essential to have that flowchart mapped out on day one of your private practice. It is essential though to have the privacy policy on day one of your private practice. So just bear that in mind. Another one that you might not have thought of, and actually I wasn't aware that we needed this until about a year ago, so I'd had a website without one for quite a while, um, which is not good, (laughs) Um, but it's your website terms of use. So I suspect a lot of us don't know much about this, but if you have a website, you need a policy that lets people know what they can and can't do with the information on it. It states how much responsibility you take for what they do with the information that you provide ideally none um, and how they can and can't reproduce your content um, any responsibility you're willing to take for damages again it's usually you're just stating that you're not taking any responsibility and it also states the laws by which you're governed so I know it seems a little bit like overkill, it certainly does to me sometimes, but actually it's essential, it's part of GDPR and it really needs to be created by a lawyer. So you can, again, you can find generic templates for this from places like Suzanne Dibbles, GDPR Academy, or the Federation of Small Business, but the problem with all of those is that although they're a really good starting point, they might not fit your needs exactly and that can be a bit of a problem with a legal document. So if you've got the budget, getting your own documents drawn up by a lawyer is always best, but that can be pretty expensive. So as a halfway house, Psychology Business School students can get templates for this from Claire Veal, our resident lawyer, who I feel like a broken record because I'm talking about her a lot. Um, But really, it's so valuable to just have those templates um, that you can trust in. And I'm really glad that we've been able to provide that for Psychology Business School, so I do keep mentioning it. Cookie policy. My limited understanding is that a cookie is a piece of tracking code that tells um, other people what visitors are doing on your website. So some of these cookies are 100% essential to the way that your website works and others tell Facebook to send you ads about the 75% off sale at Oasis. So you will have legitimate reasons to use cookies on your site, you can't avoid it. But people need to consent to their presence according to GDPR. So you need a policy explaining which ones you use and a pop-up or sticky bar allowing them to opt in. So most website builders make the pop-up sticky bar process really easy for you. If not, a developer can sort that out for you really quickly. An accurate cookie policy, however, is a bit more involved. So if you use one, your web developer will know what cookies they've used on your site. So you can ask them for a list for your cookie policy and you can slot them into a template. We've got a template in psychology business school from Claire Veal, or you can get one from someone like Suzanne Dibble or the FSB. But if you didn't use a developer or if you've had your site for a while, you might want to run a software program that tells you what cookies are operating on that site to give you a full list. If I'm honest, I did this about 18 months ago and I found the answer seriously confusing, so I just got my web developer to do it instead and I trusted her output far more than I did what the software came up with. Um, But if you type in find out what cookies are on my site into Google, you will find software, some free and some paid, that can help you if you want to take on that task. I won't recommend any as I can't testify how good they are, Um, but that option is available to you if that's what you want to do. Okay, so moving away from websites and more into our clinical work, you really need policy number four is a DNA policy. You really need um, to have a process for situations where people just don't attend therapy. I, I don't recommend using a template for this, I'm not gonna provide you with one, Just sit down and write down step by step what you will do, what feels comfortable and ethical and right for you and your practice. Take it to supervision if you want guidance on it or if you just want somewhere to think it through and just map out a policy that you feel comfortable with. You can then make sure that all of your contracts reflect that policy and then you simply follow it when you need it. So it might seem like a waste of time when you're first starting out. But what I've discovered in private practice is that DNAs often carry quite a lot of emotion with them. Like often, if somebody DNAs, you're quite worried about them, um, or you might be worried that you're not doing a good enough job, imposter syndrome might start raging, you might be worried about risk. Just a lot of situations, DNAs mean something to us that make it hard for us to make good decisions. Uh, So having your policy mapped out and having some email templates written that's really going to help you to respond efficiently next time it happens and it it does happen annoyingly okay finally then policy number six the safeguarding policy so If your business grows and becomes a bigger organisation with staff then you're probably going to want a formal safeguarding policy and you can find templates for those online. I think I got one once from the NSPCC Um, but there's plenty out there if you need a big formal safeguarding policy. But I would urge you, even in the early days of a private practice where it's just you and two clients. I think it's still really important to map out the process you're going to follow if you're concerned about an adult or a child and even if you only work with adults still have a policy for what you'll do if you're concerned about a child because it may be that you you know hear about um, a child in your client's life that you're concerned about and you still need to report that Because we don't have the safety of an employer, the NHS or another organisation, it can actually be really easy to panic in private practice um, when risk comes up and kind of uh, takes us by surprise. But a clear policy that includes things like phone numbers for supervisors, peers who you trust, social services, crisis services, it gives you such a feeling of peace of mind. It also means that you can create your therapy contract with more confidence as you can tell people exactly what happens and who you'll share information with if you're worried about them. Um, And it means that that won't take you or your clients by surprise. So I really hope that this has got you thinking about policies for your practice. And even though we started out with the therapy contract actually the way that I would work this if I had my time again is I'd write all the other policies and then write the therapy contract to make sure that that therapy contract that the client pays the most attention to actually lets them know in plain English what's going to happen um, with all of the other policies, what's going to happen with um, DNAs and safeguarding and, and all of that If you've thought all that through in advance, you can be really confident that that plain English bit of the therapy contract communicates exactly what your client needs to know, so that there are no surprises at any time in a therapeutic relationship that don't need to be there. So, we cover all of this stuff in Psychology Business School before we do marketing, because I know from experience that it's much, much easier to market a practice that you've got confidence in. And I really believe that having your policies sorted can give you a bit more ammunition in the battle against imposter syndrome. So I really think that this stuff is important. um, And I hope that if you take a bit of time to action this, write out those policies. They don't need to take you very long. Um, I've given you some indicators where you can find good templates for them. Take that time and you'll feel so much more confident to go out there, network, market yourself and do all that other stuff that we need to do to allow our businesses to flourish. Before you go, I just wanted to check something out with you because I don't know if this is just me, But do you sometimes wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning worried that you've made a terrible error that's going to bring professional ruin upon you and disgrace your family? (laughs) I'm laughing now, but when I first set up in private practice, I was completely terrified that I'd missed something really big when I was setting up my insurance or data protection practices. Even now, three years in, I sometimes catch myself wondering if I've really covered all the bases properly. And it's hard, no actually it's impossible, to think creatively and have the impact you should be having in your practice if you aren't confident that you have a secure business underneath you. But it can be really overwhelming to figure out exactly what you need to prioritise before those clients start coming in. So I've created a free checklist plus resources list to take the thinking out of it. Tick off every box and you can see your clients confident in the knowledge that you have everything in place for your security and theirs you can download it now from psychologist.drosey.co.uk forward slash client checklist and the link is in the show notes thank you for listening to this week's episode of the business of psychology podcast If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you Do More Than Therapy.